Hey guys, thanks again for tuning in to the Amir Fazeli podcast. In today's episode, I've got my friend Will Berkman, who actually started out as a client of Adonis Athletics, but uh, since those days and those years, he's gone on to uh, establish his own very successful business in the industry. He's got a, a background in uh, sports science as well as dietetics. Very smart guy, very switched on and looks at things from, from a particular point of view. And that's why it's always good to have people like that on and uh, see their point of view in, in different things. So this episode will specially apply to those of you who work in the fitness industry, especially as coaches and personal trainers. We talk about the state of the fitness industry, improving online coaching, and what he thinks will change in the years to come perhaps, uh, as a reaction to COVID and it, its effects on the fitness industry. We also talk about uh, some tips on how to structure your in-person as well as online fitness business. And to go with that, what kind of a mindset you need to be able to start your own fitness business, whether it's a brick and mortar facility like a gym or an online uh, sort of service that you wanna provide to people. Uh, obviously, we talk about some training principles and stuff like that amongst amongst it all. And we talk about his plans for uh, educating PTs and coaches in the future. It's a very interesting insight into his mind and uh, what he sees things to be and, and his tips on how he basically got started and went on to become uh, as successful as he is in the fitness industry, not to mention co-hosting a very successful fitness podcast called Weekly Weights, which he co-hosts with uh, Alex Hayes. So uh, check it out and I hope you enjoy. All right, we've got uh, a very special guest today. Uh, his name is Will Berkman, or as I like to call him with this alter ego, Bill Berkman uh, is a is Slightly easier to put up with sometimes uh, as Bill. Uh, Will, what's happening, brother? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Appreciate being here. Um, yeah, we were just talking off air. I can't say a whole lot is happening. So all the more reason I'm stoked to be on the show. Yeah, what's... Uh, talk us through, especially with you, because you're, you're always, obviously for those people listening, um, you're a you're a coach, Um your personal trainer, uh, been doing it for qu uh, quite a number of years, and before COVID, everything was was uh, pretty smoothly following along, and then and then the lockdown happened. How how did the lockdown affect you? Uh, how did it affect other people who um, you know your coworkers, I guess your colleagues? Uh, and the reason why I ask is because obviously, as you know, I, I don't work within a PT environment. Um, I obviously heard from my friends, from you, from others, uh, about its effects, but uh, you were more at ground zero, so to speak. How did things affect you and, and how, mu how much of those effects have still lingered on till now? Um, and, and maybe it's, it's led to different changes that you guys have had to make on a permanent basis. Talk through that. Yeah, so I had like almost fortunate circumstances that came out of unfortunate circumstances because at the very start of this year, I was working at Lyft Performance Center um, which was a really great gym and it shut down very suddenly. 
And when that happened, I had been sort of straddling this middle ground of saying, I want to do a lot more work online, but I still like coaching in person. And so I'm going to turn my in-person coaching into like a supplement to my online business. That was the thought rolling through my head. Then lift shut. And I was like, am I allowed to swear on this podcast, by the way? Sorry, say that again. And I swear, if I swear that bad. Oh, fuck yeah. Go for it. Unreal. So I was like, shit. That's all I wanted to say, by the way. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, go, go it, for it. You know, I like I better get a wriggle on and and start restructuring my business a bit because because I don't want to be in a position again where like I'm super reliant on one facility and and have that swept out from underneath me. So so I started working at another couple of gyms. I'm at Steed Fitness in Chippendale and City Strength HQ in Marrickville um, with with pretty flexible arrangements for how I run my PT sessions there. But I had sort of done that so I could set myself up to do a primarily online business um, again. And then right as I was sort of getting into the swing of things and feeling like I had a good routine, COVID hit. And, And so that meant I had to lean even harder into the online side of stuff and really, really pull back from one to one. But the reason I say it's kind of fortunate is because I'd already started making that transition on the basis of things that were happening prior to COVID. So, so that helped me out a lot. And the other thing that probably helped me out a lot is even though I, even though I, you know, advertise myself largely as a powerlifting coach and I do work primarily with powerlifters, um, the, my clients were pretty loyal to me. I think most of them probably enjoy working with me or at least they don't know any better. Um, so, so I had a large number of them stay around, um, but also I do have a, a decent backing in like just general training and stuff as well. So when we were going into lockdown, I was able to offer them both like a sense of direction in terms of their training to try and like maintain some strength and muscle and improve some facets of their physicality that they don't normally work on. Um, but also I very quickly, because I'd been thinking about how do I want to make a better online business, I also sort of really lent into trying, cre- trying to create a bit of a community for my clients. So I did things like create Zoom phone calls and stuff for them to all catch up lent harder into the reflection side of things. So rather than just focusing on purely giving them technical feedback and like concrete programming stuff, I was getting people to do weekly check-ins and come to those, come to those zoom meetings and do group reflection where we tackle like big questions about our attitudinal approach to training, the things we're learning from training in our life, how the rest of our life impacts training and how, how training maybe positively impacts our life and stuff. So all those things, I think strengthened my business in some ways and strengthened my coaching skills um, and helped me helped me probably figure out some of the things that I want to continue to do as I build up my online stable a little bit more now. But having said all that, still going into lockdown meant that I did lose some clients, particularly those who, you know, I work with a lot of PTs. So those who had a big drop in their income, you know, I'm not a necessary expense. So, so a few of them had to cut me I lost the income from all my um, my one-to-one sessions and um, and the number of inquiries dried up because normally I have a pretty frequent stream of people just asking about working with me and then, you know, we vet whether or not it's actually a good idea from there, whereas it went down to pretty much zero for, for the first little while of lockdown because nobody was looking for a new PT when they couldn't exercise. Um, and so it was a pretty, it was a pretty lean time income wise. And now that, now that gyms have reopened, what I found is again because I do work with so many PTs, um, and so many people are still sort of being affected financially by this. 
filling my books out again um, in the limited times that I've made available in the gym has been a lot harder. So, so very much it's still an online operation for me. Um, and I mean, that's a very long answer, but I could go into how it's affected other people that I've spoken to too, but I think we'll save that. No, I mean, I assume for others, it's much the same as how it's affected you, you know, in, in maybe various degrees, but more or less the same pattern. Um, uh, because everybody felt it across the, across the, um, the whole health and fitness industry and, uh, they're still feeling it. It's not like it's kind of back to super normal, f uh, for, for everybody. And some people just completely closed down. They could not, uh, maintain, um, land, some landlords didn't help the situation and, Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of things. And then others, they closed down simply because they were in it for kind of the wrong reasons or not strong enough reasons in the first place. So as soon as things get a little bit hard, of course, you don't want to stick it out. Like it's not, uh, it's not something that you really enjoy or really love. Whereas for some of us, that's all we know. That, that's all we know how to do. That's We've invested our, our, a lot of our life into it, a lot of our time into it, whether it's through degrees, um, or, or money and, and years spent on, on building a business. So you're not going to just walk away from it just like that. It's going no, to take a lot, you know. I think um, something that you guys do at Adonis really, really well that sort of came to light um, in this is that like fitness is still fundamentally a like a hospitality business and a service business. And people want to train with people and in environments that make them feel like they have a sense of belonging. Like people still come in wanting wanting to make physical gains. You know, nobody comes to a powerlifting coach and says, I don't give a fuck about getting stronger. You know, they want that. But they still train with a coach that makes them feel good. They go to the gym that surround, you know, surrounds them with like-minded people and stuff. And I think, you know, Absolutely. during lockdown, I know you guys were lending out equipment and you sort of had like the Adonis at home thing happening. So you were still encouraging people to sort of stay in contact and feel together, which particularly when you're isolated like we all were, I think that makes a big difference. And, you know, for me, like I said, I had those group calls. I made sure I had more FaceTime with my clients. You know, I'd reach out, I'd phone some of them if I hadn't heard from them in three or four days just to be like, how are you going? But I think for the PTs, particularly whose business wasn't really online and who did reply on, oh, sorry, rely on that FaceTime um, to create that personal connection with their clients, it probably hit extra hard again. Because if, you know, if the reason that like Maggie and Sue or whatever like to come and train with you at six in the morning It's because you're a bright young lad who smiles and makes them enjoy whatever it is being in fitness first. And suddenly they don't have that face-to-face -face contact. Finding that way to give them that sense of belonging and giving them that sense of hospitality and things is really, really hard. Um, and so, yeah, I think the rug was swept out from a number of people. But it's like you said, the people who are like, this is really, really what I want to do and who have sort of realized, hey, this is what keeps people coming back to me and this is what gives me a sense of joy in delivering, you know, training to them is seeing how it enriches the rest of their life. They're going to lean into it and try and find, well, what can I do to, to make some lemonade out of this kind of lemony situation? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, you know, you touched on it, on something um, pretty important there in regards to um, uh, people who had relied a lot on face-to-face -face times and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, in this episode particularly, uh, especially having you on uh, with so much experience uh, in, in the industry, like so many years of experience, so much knowledge, and being on, uh, having been uh, inside, you know, actual gyms, leading gyms, good gyms, with a lot of people, uh, different types of people, uh, 
and so you're obviously naturally we're going to have a lot of audience listening to this who are pts uh coaches people who own studios and stuff like that can you can you tell me what uh what what did you learn what did you take away from from the lockdown period uh you touched on it uh, you know in part just now in the sense of people who rely solely on on face-to-face time etc but uh, as far as business goes as far as uh, mindset goes uh, did you did, did you have any other epiphanies any other you know eye-opening moments uh, that you're like okay from now on i gotta do this you know uh, anything like that um probably the big one in terms of how i conduct my coaching was um was that more that more sort of motivational based check-in where and and again this is something i have to credit adonis for so i worked with amir for nearly four years um one of the things that one of the things that really really helps with um with athletic development is sort of engendering a sense of ownership in your training and it's it's something we can kind of take for granted when all of the circumstances are really well lined up for us you know if like i said if you're a powerlifter and you can walk into a gym and there's alico racks and competition bars and plates and you've got training partners and stuff with you all the time, it's pretty easy to just do powerlifting. And, and, you know, particularly if you've got a coach working in the facility with you and stuff, it's like you almost never have to take charge of your own shit because the environment is just so easy for you. And that's that's great. That's a leg up that that everybody would love to have. But but when you, when you are suddenly given the chance to start making some own training decisions, you have to look for some motivation for yourself you have to really like push and do some things that are uncomfortable and try and discover joy in circumstances that aren't necessarily what you would have chosen or look for ways to progress outside of what you would have normally thought. Um, it makes you both appreciate the good bits in training more and just become a more rounded, better athlete. And I think by particularly doing the group, um, the group reflection stuff that I was doing by getting people in, in a zoom call and saying like, Hey guys, you know, like I would have a, I would have a discussion topic like say maintaining motivation when your goals have had to change, and then I'd have a few basic questions there. And if you have ten or fifteen people in a room and you start saying, you know, hey, like what's been bad about your training recently? Almost everybody has a story. And then you say, well, you know, what's helped you with that? And sometimes they go, man, I'm really struggling to fix it. But then the next person in the group goes, oh, I went through something like that a couple of years ago, and this is what I did. Or like, here's something that's helped me now. When you start doing that and you make the people in the room sort of feel quite empowered in in like looking after their own training, when you start giving them a little bit more rope to make training decisions and come back to you as a coach who's talking to them on a bit more of a on an equal level rather than me just saying do exactly this all the time and don't you ever deviate from it and stuff, you build people who who sort of like develop that greater sense of independence and self-worth from doing their training. And realize that they are capable and because because of all that they start to actually enjoy training in circumstances that they wouldn't have you know circumstances where they are having to like i had one guy who had a 15 kilo bag of cement and a light band and the closest thing he had to a step to do step ups on was like just the step down from his veranda to his lawn and dude was still training three days a week like and he was training pretty hard like but he liked it because he'd still show up twice a week to the chats with the other people and sort of say, hey, this is what I've been doing. This is what I'm learning. And like in his check-in with me, he'd be like, man, I much preferred using a barbell. But, you know, that guy still learned something. And I think the fact that he stayed with me for, it was 
eight or 10 weeks when he didn't have any equipment at all, still stayed with me as a coach, made me realize that like as a business, what I want to offer people is not just always like expertise and optimality in programming because I can do that to a degree. But what you really want to do is provide people a feeling and provide them an avenue to getting better and realizing stuff about themselves. And when you do that, it's suddenly not just, I'm not just a textbook that they're looking up. I'm like a person that they're, that they're interacting with that makes them feel good about themselves. And carrying forward in my, um, in my coaching, that has made me realize now that a lot of my clients are back, you know, using equipment and coming to me for technical feedback and stuff. I still do give them the technical feedback because it's important, but I'm focusing a lot more of my attention on, on asking them, you know, how do you feel today? Like what decisions are you making? You know, what's going well or badly? How can we improve this? Like what problems do you foresee and how are we going to overcome them? And trying to help them build those tools to be better athletes for themselves. And I'm finding that the ones who really engage with that are getting way, way better. So I think it's maybe a more rounded coach. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, uh, I think that's a huge turning point uh, in, in terms of realization. A lot of a lot of people who are like, you know, powerlifting coaches, weightlifting coaches, whatever coaches, uh, they think of themselves <clears throat> quite one-dimensionally one a lot of times until they, you know, have a lot have enough years in the industry or something like this happens the word coach when you really break it down it it's it it's more than just you know writing a program or counting reps or giving feedback on training uh you, you're talking about a coach so literally like when you see you know those um those movies that are based on true story like uh, coach carter and and other such movies like remember the titans and so on the coach in that in that case is a football coach, is a is a basketball coach or whatever. But you see how the players um, um, develop some kind of a dependency, a reliance uh, towards this person. You know, whether it's a, as a father figure or just somebody to ask questions of and stuff like that. And that's what really a coach is, and is what it's always supposed to be. You know, people think it's it's just about writing a program. Um, you are supposed to uh, figure out a way uh, or on what you can ask them, uh, the right questions you can ask them that will then get them to ask themselves a question to find out about themselves, to uh, reach for more, to try and deliver more for themselves, you know. And that's really what real coaching is, is about. So I completely agree with you. Uh, it's it's much much more than just writing a program, and that's why it's not for everybody because not everybody either knows how to do that, nor do they. Do some people really want to do that? They just want to write a program and get paid for it, and mm-hmm. that's ultimately not not what it is. That's not that's not what coaching is. Um, yeah, can I add to that? I think it's the course. like you know if you're someone like you and me, like you know we both studied sports science. I'm fundamentally really interested in the body and, you know, how I respond to training and applied research and all that stuff. Like that's, that's actually my academic interest. And I think a lot of people, particularly people who want to be like evidence-based coaches and, you know, put out information and stuff about it, that's how they're wired to think because we think, you know, in scientific terms about the application of training variables and, you know, hormonal and morphological shit that happens in the body in response to training. And all that stuff's really important. But at the end of the day, one of the things you see in applied training research is like really, really diverse approaches can get very similar outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I think we get bogged down in chasing 
super duper optimal stuff in the way in which we write our training programs, hoping that we can just eke out that extra like 1% of response from our athlete when often there's 10 or 20 or 50% more response there to be yielded by improving our relationship with them, improving the attitude with which they approach training, maybe tweaking things occasionally away from the optimal just to put them in the right mindset um, mindset to actually get in and really fucking get after it and enjoy their training. And again, like if I think back to the most productive periods in my training career, a lot of it was like when I was coming to Adonis once or twice a week, I'm surrounded by these people who just fucking live it, you know, just love training. They get after it when they're in the gym. They train really hard. They support each other. You know, there's stronger people than me in the room. Like I always reminisce about the gov and he'd be working up to deadlift 330 kilos or something. The dude literally had to tape his elbows together to get in there and train. But, you know, he was like, he was just the toughest guy. And like, I was surrounded by people like that. And so I just had this expectation, like, well, you know, if I'm going to train, I better actually fucking really train hard and show up and not phone it in. And it was the same when I was training for footy, like, you know, I had to impress my mates and impress the coaches and be a competitor. And though, like those little things, they can add so much more to your training than pursuing really, really tiny little gains that you might see in the difference in how we apply different training approaches. And so as coaches, like it's not, it's not that I'm saying it doesn't matter what you put on the piece of paper. It matters heaps. But part of why it matters as well is because what you put on that piece of paper then has to filter through an athlete. And what you want is that athlete to have the response and the engagement and the effort and things in training that makes them better. And so if your whole coaching practice isn't isn't focused on like, how am I going to get the best out of this person? And that can be by being the most nurturing, kind, friendly person in the world or by being a complete dick to them. I don't particularly like that, but like some people do. Then, you know, like that's what it's all about basically is, is get the athlete doing stuff and have enough technical knowledge to make sure that the stuff that you're making them do is going to help. Yeah, man. I, just the <clears throat> over-reliance on, on the science of things, you know, the sports science of things or whatever, I think is, uh, it, it can be detrimental in a, in a, a lot of instances. Um, I think there needs to be more, whether they put it, put it in, you know, Cert 3, Cert 4 courses, whether they put it in university courses or, or just have the resources available um, there needs to be more stuff on on human psychology and interaction, and you know that's what that's what it is. That's what ultimately coaching is. What you say to somebody has an effect on them, you know, and um, that can really make a difference. It can really make a difference on somebody who's got who's got uh, potential and can actually l- see it, realize it, uh, and and makes a difference between not re- not ever realizing it. You know, um, tell me, do you think? A lot of people are talking about uh, training is going to shift to online and that's what we're going, online training is where it's at. Um, I personally don't know about that because it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit funny, uh, a claim like that, because to me, when, when you go into shift to online training, those people need to train somewhere. So there's a gym still needed. Um uh, so what are your views on, you know, post-COVID, all this stuff and, and the patterns that have emerged and, and stuff like that and, and, and the, the other PTs that are around you, are they all of the same opinion? And maybe I'm biased because I actually own physical gyms as well as having online clients. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't really see it. What do you, what do you reckon? 
I mean, I think that there will be a shift towards online. Um, I think partly it's by necessity. People are real, like people were forced to do it during COVID. Some of them probably realized it works for their business and like their overheads are lower. And personally, like the lifestyle for me of doing more online coaching is so much better. You know, I'm not getting up at 4.30 every morning to make sure I'm at the gym on time. So I'm stoked. Um, but there are still always going to be people who want to have a PT with them. And like you said, people still have to show up to a gym. Um, you know, some people might want to train from home a bit more often, but like, like I said, if you're a power lifter, you have reasonably specialized equipment needs. Most of the time you're going to go to a gym and most people, even who are working with an online coach would probably find it preferable to have the coach in the building occasionally. And I also think that for certain stages of your, of your career developmentally, it's probably more beneficial to have somebody with you. Like you can absolutely make online coaching work for a beginner but a rank beginner is going to get so much more out of a few in-person sessions than they will online that I don't think in-person will ever completely disappear. Um, and, but like, but yeah, overall, I'm a bit like you. I don't think in-person training will disappear. I just think that I think that people will probably refine their in-person training models a little bit. Um, and I'd say that that might mean that a lot more people kind of niche their training a bit more when they're doing in-person stuff. Um, and focus on populations or like or individuals in particular who really, really, really suit what they're offering in person and maybe have an online side to things. And what I think is going to happen for in-person trainees is there's, it's a bit like politics. You know how in politics there's people who are like rusted on Labor voters, rusted on Liberal voters, and then there's swing voters. Well, in terms of PT clients, I think there are people who are like rusted on I need a PT with me in the gym to make sure I work hard enough and so I enjoy my time there. I would never train with someone online. There's people who are like, I just want an online coach because I like going in in my own time and being flexible and just corresponding with somebody and I don't need my handheld. Then there's people in the middle who are like, they could be persuaded either way. And, and I think there is going to be more people clamoring for the attention of the people who are kind of swinging clients um, because there will be more online services offered and because a lot of people will have been exposed to online services, they won't be so quick to write them off. Like I think there was a perception maybe maybe like a year or two ago, certainly pre-COVID, where people were like, oh, online training is like a distant second best to, to one-to-one coaching. And it's sort of just the cheap option you do if you can't find a good PT. Whereas now, particularly when people are actually offering good online services, some people might be like, man, having an online coach is amazing. I have this great program. I talk to them face-to-face you know, once, twice a week. And I get, I get access to all this technology that gives me feedback on, on how I'm doing. And like, and personally, I think it's just as good or better than having an in-person coach that has all this upsides and it's still a little bit cheaper. So I think, I think basically there will be more competition from the online sector and within the online sector. And that is going to make in-person training a little bit harder. Um, And I think you will have to niche harder and sell better to therefore get people as an in-person coach, but I can't ever see it disappearing. Basically, I think in-person is still it's still the essence of being a PT. Yeah, some people just need that. You know, it just comes down to personality type. Some people just want to have that uh, connection, that face-to-face conversation with somebody. There are some pros and cons to both sides um, in terms of the actual coaching, such as just uh, just a quick example. Um, the, the ability to really uh, look at, at and break down a technique face-to-face is, is far superior in, in, in um, my experience. But with that being said, 
with your experience uh, with online and 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 uh, you know other colleagues that you speak of and stuff like that speak to um, what are some ba- what are some ways to f- improve online and and eradicate uh, more and more disadvantages and cons about it uh, how can we uh, anybody listening to this who wants to go online how can they uh, or what things should they do to make online coaching almost as good as face to face in terms of the quality of service is it you know uh, making sure at least minimum once a week check in uh, camera angles etc uh, etc et what what is your was your experience with that what are your thoughts i think um, one of the first things that really helps for online coaches is to define expectations So make sure your clients know exactly what they're signing up for, what they can expect from you, how long things take and how they can help you do your job well. Because if you've done that, then you already set the basis for a a helpful relationship. And if your system is, you know, like Amir just said, say like a once a week check-in and you say to people, hey, like, you know, every Friday I want you to send me all this stuff and I'm going to get back to you by Sunday afternoon so you can review it for your Monday session or whatever it happens to be then they know that's the base of our relationship. And if they message you on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, five times a day, asking you for stuff, you're, you can quite reasonably say, no, like, this is my workflow. I do it this way to help you the best I can. So systematize things, communicate them clearly. That's number one. Number two is think about how every aspect of your service um, interacts, like, interacts with the client. And I mean that both from like a practical and an emotional perspective. So one thing that I'm currently working with Bryce Lewis from the strength athlete, um, and I think he does a really, really good job. But one thing that he does is a video check-in. So he asks me to send him like, you know, a 10 minute ish chat about how my training's been going that week, what's going on in my life. And he responds looking into the camera, talking to me, hits on all the points that I mentioned and so on. And that creates the sense of a very personal connection, even though communication is delayed. And I think if he were to send me the exact same thing in just a long form email written, it would feel much, much more impersonal, especially when sometimes I'll send him something and it might be four or five days before before he actually gets back. So you want to still create that sense of personal connection. And then if you have multiple modes of communication, so I talk to my clients throughout the week on Facebook Messenger. Um, I encourage them to send me training videos, ask me for feedback, tell me how they're feeling. And then I also do that weekly check-in, which I conduct in a similar way to Bryce. And I have those Zoom meetings. So I then think about, well, what types of feedback and information am I going to convey in each of them? Because certain ones are really well, are really well placed for one and really poorly for another. So when we're talking about, say, longer-term plans for somebody's training, things that are motivating them right now, things that are impacting them in their life and so on, the weekly check-in is a really good place for me to do that because it's a place I can group all that stuff together. I can make some notes so that I'm prepared for their future training weeks, but I can also convey something very personally because I'm looking to the camera and they can see all those extra verbal cues when I talk. They can see my facial expressions, the way I move my hands. They can hear changes in inflection that sort of convey emotion. Um, And so when you're talking about topics that are emotional, that's a good time to do it. And for the planning talk, it just makes more sense because then it's consolidated. Whereas if somebody sends me, you know, throughout the week, four or five different things about how they're feeling about their training, what they want to do in their future plans and stuff, when I then go to start planning their next few training blocks, I'm going back through my Facebook messenger, skipping videos, trying to find like, you know, one or two lines that they wrote about that shit and I just lose it. And so I actually do a worse job for them. 
So I, I delineated, I say, hey, like, you know, this is the place for training updates and for any adjustments to your program I have to make or emergencies. Like if, if something goes wrong on Monday and you're not doing a weekly check until Saturday, please tell me on Monday so I can fix it, but do it there. So that way I can action it immediately. Longer term things go in the, in the weekly check-in. And then the Zoom call is where we do that, do that reflective stuff because we have that whole environment created. So number two is think about, yeah, how you're conveying information where you do it. Um, and number three is think about how those systems interact with like the types of clients that you're working with as well and how you position yourself generally. So like I said, I do work with a large number of PTs and my clientele are mostly powerlifters and strength athletes, although I do work with general population clients as well. But mostly the people I work with are fundamentally very interested in their training. They want to have a lot of contact with me. They want to have contact with each other and training is reasonably central to what they do. And so my services reflect that. It asks for a reasonably intensive relationship. We talk quite a lot. I offer them a lot of independence because I know that they're engaged and they want that. But if you're an online coach who is like, I train really general population clients who are kind of training to tick the boxes, they want it to take up as little space in their life time-wise and emotionally as possible, then you probably want to think, well, how can I make my services suit that? So, you know, that might mean very simplistic programming. It might mean a once a week check-in that takes them five minutes on their end, but takes you 20 so that they get a lot of value without a lot of time. But that has to be that has to be sort of like built into your service. You don't build a comprehensive service and then say, okay, I want you to use this sparingly. That doesn't make sense. You build a service that that deals with the people that you want. And then finally, you've got to think about um, pricing. And something that I've realized for myself is now I charge a reasonably premium rate for my one-to-one coaching because it's reasonably intensive on my end. Probably takes me an hour and a half per week for each client that I work with. So if I'm working with 25 clients, that's a full work week. Um, So I charge quite a lot for that, but that also excludes a large number of people who don't have the budget to spend that much money or who want to engage with me, but just don't quite want to do it on that level. And so I've also got a second coaching service, my squad, which is a little more generalized, a little more hands-off on both of our ends, but it still provides a lot of the essence of that coaching service that I spoke about before, just in a slightly less time-intensive form. And so, again, if you're trying to pitch to people who are not highly invested or don't have a whole lot of money, there's no point in building a service that's going to cost them two-thirds of their weekly salary because most people aren't going to spend that on you. Um, You've got to offer something cheap. And if you want to offer something cheap, then you've got to make sure that the systems at your end allow you to service people in a reasonable amount of time because what you're essentially selling in your online services is an hourly wage for yourself. And so if you say... It's ten dollars a week to do this to do this thing with me, but for every person that pays you ten dollars, you're spending an hour and a half, and you work a forty-hour week. You've literally made like four hundred dollars, or not even. In fact, you've you've made two thirds of that. You made two hundred and seventy-five bucks in a week. That's nuts. So, so somewhere in there, you need to think about how can you scale things and how can you make the service as good as it can possibly be, without wasting anyone's time on either end as much as you can because you're asking for a portion of your client's time just the same way as you're asking for a portion of your client's time when they show up for a one-to-one session with you. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice there, man. And for those listening, I mean, uh, just some business uh, business talk uh, for those of you PTs and coaches uh, listening to this. Uh, what Will said is, is um, extremely important. A lot of people, uh, they 
they offer just one tier or one product. You need to have a multitude of products uh, of, of different uh, features and benefits that would fit different uh, sort of um, population groups. Not, we're not saying, or I'm not saying to uh, sell to everybody. You should not be doing that. But within that, within your niche, within your population group, your interest, you should have more than one uh, product. So you have a premium one, uh, you have a sort of mid-tier and a, and a low-tier one. So typically three is what you want to aim for. And uh, because that way you give people some freedom and some flexibility. Some people's budgets may be higher and they, they want a little bit more uh, intensive, uh, a more intensive experience. You know, other people are kind of like in the middle uh, it's important to them, but not that important to them. Their budget also is not that high, you know, and others are just, uh, like Will said, they're just doing it just to fit, uh, tick the box, you know. So uh, for those of you listening and, and maybe struggling a little bit because you're just trying to force one product down people's throats, uh, the, the issue could be that you need to think about a multitude of products. Typically, three is where you where you want to uh, aim for. Any more than that, it's, it's too complicated. Um one is certainly not a, a ideal. Two is not bad, but uh, three is probably better if you can actually make something that makes sense uh, in terms of the tiers. So that's that's fantastic advice. Uh, staying on the topic of of business development and stuff like that, uh, where do you uh, where do you find that your leads? Uh, generate the best or how do they generate the best? Because I know you run, obviously, a very successful podcast with co-host um, Purple Haze. Alex Hayes, shout out, listening to this, I hope. Um, so do you find that that's helped? Do you find other forms? Uh, so for people listening to this, again, struggling, especially now post-COVID, you know, they're trying to get back on their feet. What can they do? How can they uh, generate leads on a more consistent basis? Yeah, so... Um it's funny, I actually started Weekly Weights with Alex, not with the intention of using it really for lead generation. Um, but what we were talking about absolutely resonated with people. And so that's been one of my biggest sources of um, source of lead gen. And I also write articles on my website. And typically what happens is, oh, and on top of that, obviously, I have Instagram Q&As and things. And I'm now running a Twitch channel as well, where I do form checks and, and video analysis for people too. So... The reason I list all of them now before I talk about this is is all of them have different levels of engagement. So even though my job isn't really content creator at all, like I, I don't budget time in my week to, to create content specifically for this purpose or to make money, I still put out content on all these platforms. That's reminding people that I'm a coach. And then on top of that, obviously, I have my clients themselves who are a referral network and your clients are your best cheerleaders. So that's another reason why what Amir said about having multiple tiers of business is important is if you exclude heaps of people who want to work with you, you're not just excluding their money. You're also excluding their whole network of people who are suddenly going to hear of you when they start training and tagging you in their Instagram stories and things. So anyway, my point is I have my Instagram. There's a large number of people who message me really regularly on Instagram and I don't file them away in my head always as like, oh, this person's a lead. They'll be training with me soon. But that's somebody who's interested in what I have to say. They're interested in my thoughts on topics. So I put them out there. And then the next tier is people who might listen to my podcast. So my Instagram takes 10 seconds of someone's time to read something I have to say. Um, but, you know, they know there's a podcast out there and possibly they come from the podcast to my Instagram too. But people listen to the podcast. It's conversational. It's fun. But it contains a lot of information. 
So again, they're learning from that. And, and when they're looking for answers in their training, they might look to the podcast for some more information too. In my podcast and through my Instagram, I also link to my website where I write articles. And some of those articles are really in depth. So I've got a few that are five, six, 8,000 words long, which is a big investment of someone's time. And it's harder content to consume than the other two. But if someone's highly interested in a topic, they might go there as well. And then I have my Twitch channel where it's entirely free, but I say to people, send me your videos and I'm live on air. I'll talk about your technique. I'll talk about what muscles look like they're strong or weak, what we can do to remedy it, You know how you might be able to improve your training. And if you have any questions, you can talk to me there too. And highly engaged people will literally take their time in their Monday evening and sit down and talk with me on my Twitch and try and learn stuff about training. But all these streams give people avenues to interact with me. And what I'm trying to do in doing them, I mean, partly I do it because I enjoy it and I want to help the community. But from a business perspective, what I'm trying to do is position myself as that guy who says, no matter your level of engagement, if I can help you, I want to help you. And eventually all those people, when they start going, you know, like my motivation for powerlifting's kicked up a bit, like I'm interested in taking on a coach and stuff. When they start going, well, who's somebody who could answer these questions or help me out? Their first answer is going to be me, right? Because I'm already doing it. And so, and so I have all these, all these mediums through which I produce content. They all speak in a slightly different way to slightly different people. And they feel to you by your level of time and interest. Um, and I do that. And then occasionally I put out a little nudge and say, you know, I've got a few spots left in my one-to-one coaching, you know, come talk to me here. But all of those work slightly differently. And I do think the podcast is probably the one that has generated me the most clients over time because I think the podcast also gives people a very good sense of my personality. They hear me like be very serious and analytical and then swap to just being a complete goofball immediately. And they probably go, okay, well, you know, there's a bloke that's like not a fucking robot, which is fun. Um, but the podcast, <laughs> yeah. you know, we've got 115,000 downloads or something on the podcast, right? So like I, I'm only working with 35 clients or something, 40 clients total right now. So there's a large number of people who listen to that podcast who still don't hire me. So there still has to be, just like in their business, you have to have tiers. There still has to be other tiers of content that help those people filter through and see like, are you the right guy to reach out to? You know, it's not just enough to have one thing, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, Content-wise, I mean, especially now, it's just such a great time, I reckon, for, uh, for just people who want to um just make a not even a killing just a living you know it's it's just there's so many things at our disposal like when i just think about it and i think about it on a regular basis i just think man like look at all these this technology these apps these all these um things that are at our disposal like we should be anybody who wants to make it can and should be able to make it uh in in uh or you know survive at least in this day and age, um, you know, you think back to like the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, like there were people who were, who were doing absolutely fantastically in terms of business development. And they had none of this at their disposal. And, you know, now we're at such a position that I think that if you're not, um, uh, producing comparable results, to, uh, to somebody that's, you know, one or two tiers higher than you back then, right? 
you you aren't working hard enough you aren't working smart enough you're not really hustling you don't, you don't have that up and go about you you know which which you should so i just think there's there's just so many so much at our disposal so many advantages that we have and i don't know if that's actually making people lazy and, be, and making them complacent uh in in some ways and and they're not taking advantage of it um but i just think if you're really truly serious about wanting to make it wanting to be somebody uh wanting to realize what your potential is you know uh, wanting to grow a business uh there's just so much ways to get yourself out there and as long as you stand for something and you have a message and it's a it's a good message it's a strong message and it's it's been uh, communicated regularly uh, you're going to have a bunch of people that will want to follow that will want to follow you would want to uh, try you out at least. Uh, so I just think uh, I think it's it's great. I think it can be bad in some ways, uh, in some ways, and and that's. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say it in any in any uh, negative way or anything like that. But it does also open the door for a lot of people who are who have the up and go about them, uh, but don't really have the knowledge, uh, don't really have the know how, or even good intentions to be able to take advantage of people and that is happening so in 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 some senses it's also not not great um can but, i stick uh, to that yeah. a little bit yeah yeah for sure go not about not about badly intentioned people i've been pretty lucky most people i've interacted with have been good but um but the idea of like opportunity and resources to reach out so like i personally often find myself like paralyzed by opportunities because i've probably like right now got five or six things in my head where i'm like that might be a viable business and it's like it's possibly open to me, like things that are related to my coaching, but I'd have to dive in and learn a new skill set and do a new thing and so on and and sort of divert myself from my core my core business, which is being a coach. Um, and so it's easy to get paralyzed by opportunity because you see so many things around you where you're like, I could do that, I could do that, I could do that, and you never know which hair to chase. Um, and I think part of part of what helps you be successful is having that core message, you know, those values that you stand for, the things that interest you and being able to sort of stick your flag in the ground and say, this is what I'm going to do. So for me right now, I say like, I'm a coach. And then, you know, the next step in when my, when my coaching business is absolutely stable, my next step might be like, I'm going to educate other coaches because I'm a coach and I can help other coaches do that and so on and so on and build from there. But you need that foundation. But, but when you are, um, or do you want to say something to that? No, no, go on. Uh, no, okay. uh, it's, it's not important yet. Yeah, go on. Um, but when you are like faced with novelty, um, one, of the, one of the hardest things is, is like taking that first step because you can have imposter syndrome. You go like these opportunities are open to everyone. Like, so why should I take it? Because I'm, I might not be special. And, um, and I think that, I actually just wrote something about this on my Instagram story. Somebody asked me like, when are you ready to start coaching people? Um, but this is true for any product you launch or anything that you want to do different in your businesses. You just kind of have to fucking start. And like with weekly weights, um, I've told this story before we started the podcast. And actually the reason I wanted to do it was because I wanted this. Um, I wanted to do this thing that we had to do in my, um, in my dietetic studies, which was reflective practice. So you come in and you do like a case study. You say, I saw this patient. They have this problem. This is what I did. These are the results. And, you know, this is what I could have done better next time. And you support that with science and 
it forces you to look back and say, how could I be better at my job? And we were doing that. And the whole time in dietetics, I didn't really want to be a dietitian. But I was sitting there like, why don't, why don't people do this in personal training? Like, that's fundamental to actually getting better at anything is saying, how do I do this better? So I sit down with Purple Haze and I say, look, man, um, you know, I reckon we should do exactly this for powerlifting. We'll do some case studies. I'll interview you. I'll record it. I'll literally write down your answers so you don't have to do anything. And he was like, fuck, man, why don't we just do a podcast? It'd be way more fun. And I was like, you know, like, you're probably right. Yeah. But both of us were like, well, we don't know how to do a podcast, right? Like, had no idea. Yeah. So, so what we did, we got my phone and we recorded in audio notes, literally just with my phone sitting between us, this podcast, put it in GarageBand. I didn't know how to do any editing. We had to, we had to um, Instagram call somebody to ask them, like, how do you host a podcast on the internet? Because I had no idea. So we put this podcast out and like when I look back at it now, I'm like, oh, that's cringe. Like we did it so badly, right? But people still liked it. And like the first day we put it out, somebody roasted us on Facebook. Like they put out a public post saying that, you know, all these people think they should start a podcast when they got fucking nothing to say and just ripped on us. Um, and then they deleted the post eventually because I think people said, oh, these guys are all right. But point is like somebody hated on us immediately, but broadly we got support. And within like literally a month, we're putting out this podcast. We did it like two or three times a week for the first month. So we had 10 episodes out really quickly. Within not very long, people were like treating us like an authority, like we had any idea what we were doing. And I still, it took me the first four months of having a podcast to realize that I could put like a noise gate and compressor on the audio in GarageBand and make us actually sound good. So like I had no fucking idea what I was doing. And I look back on the things I said coaching wise then, and like most of them hold up, you know, I wasn't an idiot, but like there's things I've changed my mind on. But the point is that I literally just, or we had the wherewithal to just do it. And the same is true, like with my squad, with my lower tier coaching option is when I first went to launch it at the start of the year, I had this idea. I was like, look, I want to, I want to offer this cheaper option so I can bump up my other prices but also because like I could offer a really good coaching service that's a little bit less intensive. I know that's going to suit a lot of people who do powerlifting. And if I run some group sessions off it as well, it'll help me make some good money. Like it's a good idea. Um, but going to do it, I didn't know how I was going to deliver it. Like I figured that out pretty quickly, but I didn't know how I was going to deliver it. Didn't know if anybody would actually be keen for it because I was advertising like group online coaching and I was deliberately saying it's cheaper and less intensive than my one-to-one and mostly people reach out to me for that. Had no idea whether it was going to work. Started doing it as it happened, it worked. And people think it's a good idea. But again, like I didn't know until I went and I try and remind myself of that now. In fact, I really consciously do because it's so easy to just not do something in case you fail. But just like with pretty much any other domain, like it's the willingness to start that actually makes you good. And it's the willingness to possibly fail that helps you actually succeed down the track. And if I have maybe one more time for a very short story, is like my dad, who was a very successful businessman in his own right, and he's spoken to Amir about business before. When he actually dropped out of uni, he was studying like economics or commerce or some shit, drops out of uni because it didn't really suit him. And he ended up starting this finance business initially. This was before his main business. But he was telling me he had absolute imposter syndrome because he was like, fuck, I didn't even finish my degree. Like, you know, I'm like well-intentioned dude. I can work hard and stuff. 
But he was like, I don't know if anyone's going to take me seriously. So what he did was he got a suit and a briefcase, which was often empty, and he put ads in the yellow pages at the time saying, you know, like David Berkman, financier. And people just started ringing him and going, you know, you must be able to help me. And then he'd go in and he'd sit down and he'd be fucking sweating. <laughs> but, um, but he'd do it <laughs> And yeah. because the dude walks in with a suit and a briefcase and looks him in the eye and says like, you know, all right, like I'm here to do the job. People are like, right, you can do the job, you know? And so yeah. it's like, it's literally just having the cajones to say like, I'm going to get out there and fucking give it a crack that positions you above other people. Because once you're the dude giving it a crack, when they go, who am I going to ask to do this? They're going to go, it's the dude giving it a crack. They're not going to fucking ring you up Absolutely. and say, hey, you're sitting on the bench. You're not doing anything right now. You want to do this hard thing. Like no one does that. 100%. Man, I got to get you. In fact, I got to get your dad on this podcast one day because. He'd be good value, uh, but he'd be really good. Oh, mate, he's so good. Uh, he is, um, you know, a lot of, uh, not a lot, every, everybody who is like that, like your father, who um, uh, who makes it, who, who does well, has those types of uh, characteristics. And it's very telling because all you got to do is success leaves clues. And People need to just look around, you know, uh, to see what other people who are doing well doing, what what kind of an attitude they have towards life. Not in particular one specific thing that they're doing, but their attitude. And just all you got to do is just follow that. You just got to em- emulate that. You got to try and be like that, you know. And it it is exactly that, you know. People stop so much, so many times because they have this imposter syndrome and they don't have confidence in themselves because they, they think like, man, I don't have the, I don't have the experience. I don't have, I don't have this, I don't have that, whatever. But it's, it's, um, it's just about starting. It's just about getting going. And a lot of times, every time I think actually, ignorance is just bliss. You just have to have this weird, stupid made up idea in your head that it's going to be fine. It's going to work out and, and, and just go ahead with it, you know, because that's, that's how Adonis Athletics started, literally. I had zero doubt in my mind, for whatever reason, that it was not going to work out. I, I mean, uh, we started, the, the first one was in, in, the, in a dead-end street. There was no foot traffic. It was in an industrial area in a dead-end street. Uh, and if you were to ask me now, after 10 years, knowing what I know, you know, was that, was that a good place to, is that a good place to start open the next branch? I would probably be like, yeah, probably not. Like, let's see if we can find somewhere better. But, but back, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here to even think that, you know, uh, there was just no fear at all in, in my head that like, I'm, I'm just rolling the dice here. How's this going to work out? Is there even a plan? There was no plan. We just went. And, uh, it's just about having confidence in in uh, doing what you're doing. A lot of times people think too much about what people, are, other people are going to say or do or think. You're always going to have people talking shit about what you're going to do, always. And doesn't matter how well-intentioned or bad-intentioned you are, you're always going to have somebody saying, Man, fuck that motherfucker, look at him, who is he? Who does he think he is? He doesn't have this, he doesn't have that, uh, or whatever. But as long as you have a particular goal, and and hopefully your your goal and your intention is good, uh, you just gotta you just gotta go for it. And uh, you know, in fact, the probably the way way that you know you're doing it right is is people uh, saying 
uh, bad shit about you behind your back or even to your face, whatever. Just criticism in general. Uh, that's a great thing. So welcome it and, and ask for more uh, because uh, you- yeah, any publicity is good publicity and and uh, um, there is a there's a direct correlation between how much you're growing and how well you're probably doing uh, to the criticism that you're getting. Obviously, hopefully the criticism isn't about you stealing uh, something or, or, or damaging people's uh, properties or reputations or doing anything negative and, and, and destructive. But uh, other than that, uh, fuck what people say. Yeah, that's what I was actually going to say is like, if you're well-intentioned, like I'm not saying go out and do something that you're absolutely not qualified for and rip people off and be a dickhead. That's stupid. But if you're like, you you know, you want to be a coach, say, and you know the basics of how to, how to teach someone to squat bench and deadlift and you're willing to put yourself out there and say, I'm going to coach people. Like, I'm really keen to do this. I love powerlifting. Come see me for powerlifting coaching or whatever. If you have good intentions, people will still criticize you. They'll say you wrote a shit program or you gave someone a cue that doesn't work or you'll read an article from someone you look up to that says says something opposite of what you've been saying and you realize you've been wrong about something that you've been saying confidently for a while. That's all fine because if you have good intentions, you're going to take all those things on, on board and say, well, how can I be a better powerlifting coach? Because that's part of what you've, that's part of what you've defined as being important to you. Um, but you still have to make a start and you never get those opportunities to learn those lessons. Like, I mean, going back to weekly weights, obviously I wouldn't have figured out how to use garage band a bit better or whatever. If I hadn't had somebody say, Hey man, the audio quality in your podcast is shit and I want to listen to it, but it's bad. Um, you know, like that, that's, that's criticism. But obviously, cause I was like, well, you know, I want to keep doing this podcast because people like it and I enjoy doing it. And I think it's good for my business. Um, so I figured out how to improve the audio quality. Like it's just, it's just little things like that. You know, I'm like, I don't have pretensions that I'm fucking running a multi-trillion dollar company or anything crazy like that. Like I'm just a do-do coaches, but even then I've benefited a lot from just like, just having the arrogance, I guess, to start doing things that were probably just a tiny bit above my pay grade and hoping I'd grow to meet it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Speaking of which, what are your goals? What do you... Uh, what do you got planned for the next, say, three to five years? Do you know? Um, fuck, three to five years is a long time. So, um, but it, but I, you know, I was actually on a podcast earlier this week, and and my answer was like, right now, I'm not changing anything. Um, I've had I've had sort of six ish months of a lot of up and down, and my first job is basically fill the last bits of my coaching book. And once I've done that and I've really sort of efficiently time blocked my week, I'm hoping that I've built out a business that I can do a really good job in and that sustains me really well. And then that will give me the stability and income to really launch into my next thing. And the next thing that I want to do um, as like a core part of my business is do some education for coaches. And, um, And I think that, you know, without sort of spilling the secret sauce enormously, I think that a lot of a lot of education targeted to targeted coaches right now speaks about um, speaks about the elements of coaching and the elements of sports science and stuff in a very separate manner, um, but it doesn't focus as much on how they're interrelated and the athlete interface and and that what you spoke about of like the complete idea of being a coach. Um, and so what I what I want to do is eventually build out build out some course materials or some type of education platform that helps people 
take all those all those bits of knowledge that they have and perhaps collaborate with other people who deliver that content in a really good way and try and integrate it into a system where we say, okay, well, like, how are you going to take that knowledge and convey it to a client, um, convey it to a client well, put it to use to build your own business and filter it in your own way. And it's something that I spend quite a lot of time wrestling with, but, you know, I'm glad you gave me a long time horizon. That's not something that's in the never, never, but that's something that's going to take months or, you know, possibly years to really, really build well, but it's something I think is important. Um, and related to that is eventually I want to I want to have other coaches working with me or underneath me and possibly use that as part of that education platform because something like my squad the the programming's flexible and systematized so I could take somebody on underneath me and use that whole system and the whole coaching delivery system as a way to teach them how to you know how to run their own coaching business how to how to learn things, how to apply the programming principles to the individuals in front of them and turn it into a large number of case studies. And because my squad is reasonably nearly full, if I get to the point where I have that much demand, then the next step must be to take somebody on to run the next squad because I don't want to dilute my time and give the people who have signed up with me as a coach a poor, poor job. So in short, it's fill out my coaching business and then work on coaching other coaches on the side. And then if I have like a really bright idea somewhere either side of that that I want to pursue, then maybe I'll have to find time to do it. But, you know, at my heart for now, I think of myself as a coach. And so that's that's really what I want to lean into the most. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, uh, that whole side of that side of the, the education. But obviously, you've given us some thought. Who do you got to speak to to, um, uh, you know, be able to come up with the course content in regards to meshing them together, is it a, like a, do you have to speak to a psychologist, a communications expert, a, a business a leader development guy? Like, uh, you know, have you thought about it? Do you have any ideas about who? How do you bring them together? That's a very hard question. Um, partly because I haven't thought about it deeply. You know, I've thought about who I would like to reach out to for some of the functional anatomy stuff and some of the physiology stuff. So the the basics of what do you need to know to be to be a PT. Um, but in terms of the psychology element, I'm not sure. I think it would be great to speak to a sports psychologist. Um, I think it would be great to have somebody who talks about business development and things because those are two things where I don't really know that much. You know, I know what I've learned by doing what I do, but like I said, I have no pretensions of being being an absolute expert in business. So I would have to talk to people like that. But what I really mean is is coaching people on the intersection between um, between those training principles and actually delivering it to a client. And so that is something that I think I could do very well myself. Um, talking, about, talking about, say, you know, we have this individual in front of you with these concerns, um, these concerns, these interests, these resources, you know, write your training program and talk about how your coaching approach is going to interact with them. What could you change about your approach? What could you change about your program to get better out of them? Those are things that I myself, I think I could do, but in order to equip people very well to make those decisions and probably to upskill myself so that I'm not just talking shit, I'm actually giving people really good information and yeah, you have to get experts on board. Um, and exactly who that is, I'm not quite sure yet. This is, when I say this, it's at the point at the moment where it's it's mind maps, not, you know, not a business plan yet, but it's something where I just think it is missing and it needs to be done. And so- you know, eventually I'd like to be the one who does it or one of the ones who does it. Yeah. For, uh, 
I think maybe even your your dad would be somebody to talk to to get to, and maybe you already have spoken to him, but I think he'll be he'll be amazing to talk to, give some solid ideas because he'll have crossover from you know his own industry from back in the days, and he's just a smart guy in general. So he he might even be able to jump on board as as a presenter because um, he'll be able to uh, connect some of the things together. But what you said in regards to uh, you know adaptability of of coaches to different personality types is very important and being able to read people uh, and being able to read people uh, in different scenarios and situations. So whether it might be uh, if you are dealing with a potential uh, lead, you know, that's coming for a sale, being able to understand through body language, voice tonality and the questions that they're asking and things that they're saying what it is that they're actually after and, and uh, what problem that they have that you can fix rather than just, uh, which a lot of people do is just, they just have a shotgun approach and they just talk about every feature and benefit uh, and everything that they can offer this person. And it just gets confusing. It's too much information. And so they end up losing the person. Uh, and similarly, the same sort of uh, behavior in terms of being rigid Uh, with people during training uh, where you know that somebody might be uh, apprehensive about about a squat or something like that because they've constantly missed it before. And you just being like, no, nah, come on, let's do it. Uh, you know, don't be a pussy. Just, just do it. You can do it. It's, that's not going to work. You have to figure out a way to talk to uh, different people in different scenarios based on their experiences, based on their personality types, uh, their fears, their confidence uh, points and stuff like that. And that's something that's missing. Um, a lot of people are too much into just, you know, this is what the science says. This is what the science says. This is what the science says. And it's like, man, fuck what the science says. You, you're not listening to what this person is telling you. Uh, you're not looking at uh, the body language. You're not listening to the voice tonalities, you know. You're not establishing a connection in any way with this person uh, that they can understand that you're there uh, specifically in this particular moment for their issues, you know. And so you're becoming like a robot. You're just an automaton, you're just talking talking what you want. You're just saying what you want to say. You're not hearing this other person. And that's very important. Yeah. And it's, it's very under undervalued. Yeah, I think that's something that I myself was very guilty of as well when I started coaching. Um, and even, you know, I'll say till reasonably recently is because a large number of the people who started working with me were like, well, fuck, Will's got two degrees. He writes these long articles. I'm going to hire him because he knows shit. And so I was like, well, I better flex it all the time and tell him about the science and like, and there's still a time for that and people still enjoy that. So it's it's useful. Um But what you said about like having to be there for that person in that moment is so salient. And if you go like going all the way back to my dad, um, one of the things that he's really good at is like he's a very good salesman and I've been with him a few times when he goes to buy shit and he gets so pissed off when he sees people being shit at selling stuff because like, you know, if I walk into a shop saying I want to buy a new barbecue, (laughs) I'm there to fucking buy a barbecue. Like it's it's not actually hard to sell me a barbecue, but if you're – bad salesman i'll still walk out of there without one you know and like and (laughs) when you talk to these salesmen like you know the most important thing that they can do is demonstrate that they're listening to you and they're interested in connecting you with what you need whereas what a lot of these people do and this is true for coaches as well what a lot of these people do is they suddenly fucking make it about themselves and like like what you know like if i walk into a barbecue store and the salesman is flexing on me how much shit he knows about barbecues 
but he still can't help me figure out which one's going to fit on my balcony, then I don't really give a fuck. Like it's annoying. And same thing if I go to see a powerlifting coach or a power or like a powerlifter comes to see me and they have their specific problems, they have their specific issues they want to talk about. And instead of me listening and conveying to them that I'm trying to help them solve their problems, I just tell them all the things that I think make me interesting to try and make them give me their money. They're going to be like, well, fuck, like I'm actually here for you to coach me, not for me to pay you. If that makes sense, like it's that's yes. not the direction the relationship works. 100%. And my clients roast me for talking about myself in, in my sessions all the time. But like at the end of the day, they are like I'm still there to coach them. You know, like I'm not yeah. – they're not in their training sessions to make me feel better. Like if they wanted to make me feel better, they wouldn't show up and I'd be at home fucking sipping pina coladas, you know. So we're like you're, when you're a coach, you're working with the athlete for the athlete. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, it's an acquired skill. You know, uh, some people have it more naturally because uh, they grew up in a more social setting. They are more extroverts and stuff like that. And, and so they understand it a little bit better. Uh, but then maybe they lack in other aspects, you know, in terms of knowledge and, and stuff like that. And, and they're just too much about just talking and, and conversating and, and stuff like that. And so they miss the points. Uh, so that's not good either. Uh, but it's certainly something that can be, that can be taught, that can, that can be learned. Uh, and but I think it's a, bit, it's a very important thing. It's what I was saying before as well. I think we're like, you know, like you and I study sports science. We're interested in sports science. So if we're talking to somebody, I'm like, man, the most interesting thing in the world is like, you know, how we use rate coding to improve like force output of the muscles or whatever. So like, I want to tell clients about that. Cause I'm like, that's sick. I'm interested <laughs> in it. But yeah. if you're not somebody like me, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, if you're not me, and you're somebody who's like really interested fundamentally in people, and that's just the way your personality is bent, then you're going to be much more inclined to talk about the client's feelings and things like that too. And I think I think what people, you know, like myself need to learn is the ability to turn into that like person-centered person for the person who needs that in front of them, is to sort of titrate, titrate the way in which you speak to the interests of the person in front of you and not necessarily your own interests all the time. And where they line up, obviously, it makes things super easy. Like the reason that I'm friends with the people I'm friends with is because I can talk about my interests, I can talk about their interests, and there's a lot of overlap. But when my clients hire me, my job, it's a one-directional relationship emotionally is, you know, I still want to enjoy being with them, but my job is to make sure they enjoy being with me. And so you've got a, you've got an absolute absolutely be able to sort of flick that switch and say, well, what does the client want to talk about? What does the client want to hear? What what sort of floats their boat emotionally? What keeps them engaged? Not what keeps me engaged. And more often than not, if they care about you, eventually they'll want to hear about motor unit recruitment and shit because they just think it's cute that you care. But like, but up until that point, it's got to be, it's got to be very much like, okay, well, this person has these emotional needs and I'm going to service them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, staying with the with the topic of um, business development, and it's, it's actually very good because uh, it probably doesn't get done enough. Um, <clears throat> so, w- with business, uh, with with any business, and especially a fitness business, really two things reign supreme. One is is lead generation and therefore sales, so acquisition of clients, and the other one is retention of clients because. Um, a lot of people listening to this will, will uh, nod their head when I say it's frustrating as hell, especially as, a, as somebody who's just starting out, 
when people come in and then you you are you don't have a system or you don't have a way of maintaining uh, and retaining clients and just as quickly as they come in they go others go out so you're spending all this effort and energy getting people and uh, you don't have the right systems in place or you're not doing it right or whatever it is maybe you don't have the right personality uh, you're not connecting well with people and so you're not retaining uh, the clients so you need to have an influx, but also you need to have a way to maintain so that you don't have an outflux. Uh, do you have any any um, uh, tips for people listening in regards to improving um, their client retention within their fitness business? Well, the first thing is just to actually be good at your job. Um, that is important. And, you know, not that doesn't just mean like be fundamentally a good coach. It means do those things that I was just talking about where like you've got to demonstrate care for your clients. You've got to really make them feel like by interacting with you, they're getting a positive emotional experience all the time. And again, that's something that I think that I've been guilty of not being as good at in the past. And so it's something I try very much to do now. Um, and related to that is obviously your delivery systems. So, so you've got to make sure that, you know, you're, it's a bit like in fishing. We say you got to match the hatch. you got to throw a lure that fits the mouth of the fish. Well, your services have got to align with, with the needs of your clients, you know, emotionally and time-wise. I think that's important. Um, but what was I going to say? Um, I've completely lost my train of thought. So basically be good at your job and make sure your services suit the client. That's, yeah, that's honestly the most important thing. But as far as sales go, um, Basically, if you're losing, if you're net losing clients over time, there's an issue with one of two aspects of your business. So one is that your retention sucks, which usually means there's a problem with your product and its delivery. So whether that is that you're not doing that good of a job or the systems just don't quite suit the clients, they haven't matched the hatch or the price point isn't reasonable. So if you're losing people over time and it's always a price objection and you don't have that cheaper, cheaper product to offer them, then you might be offering a service that people value, but they just don't value it enough for the price. And so you've got to find a way to trim things down and actually make it palatable to them. So that's if you're losing people, um, you're losing people out the retention side. If you're failing to make sales, then you're failing to demonstrate initial value and you're failing to speak to the emotions of the person who comes in. So demonstrating initial value for someone like myself might be a little bit easier because I have this backlog of content that people can look at um, and often the people who are inquiring with me have already heard the way I think about things, the way I convey things. They might have seen sample programs that I've written and sent them on my mailing list, read articles on my website. Like they've got some idea that I'm not bullshitting, right? That like I've got something of substance to offer them as a coach. And if you're working in a commercial gym and your first interaction is with somebody who's never read a word that you've said, nothing, then it's going to have to be different, right? If you're working on a commercial gym floor, then they want to see you coaching other clients and looking engaged. They want to see you demonstrating knowledge, training yourself and being legit. They want you to be friendly and they probably want you to have like spoken to them and engaged with them and remember their name and maybe help them out a little bit in a way that wasn't sales driven before you ever try and offer them a free training service. But they want to see like there is something underneath the surface here. Um, so there needs to be an initial value proposition and obviously you then need to meet their emotional needs. So if somebody bridges the gap from saying, you know what, like, Amir, I've spoken to you on the gym floor. You're a nice dude. Um, how about personal training? And then they sit down in their first consultation with you. They want to walk out of that consultation being like, not only were my thoughts validated, like Amir's a pretty cool dude, but 
He understands what I want to achieve. He cares about me and he's offering me a roadmap that seems credible to get there. So if you can do those two things, then sales won't necessarily be a problem, right? Provided that the other side of your business matches as well. So you've offered them that roadmap and then the pricing is palatable, the delivery method is palatable, and they believe that the value meets what you're asking for cost-wise. So those are the two elements is, does your service stack up? Does it meet their needs and keep them around? And are you offering value and, and you're actually offering value that aligns with, with the person who's walked in the door in front of you? So to extend my, do you match the hatch? Like, do you have a lure that, feeds, that fits the fish thing in front of you? Like if you're fishing for a fish that eats worms, you don't throw a squid at it, right? You throw it a worm. So, you know, you got to think, what is my value proposition saying to this client and is it actually what they want? And uh, that's a very, very important point uh, for the sales process for uh, everybody listening. Because a lot of times, uh, like I was saying before, people just throw everything at the, at, uh, the person in front of them and uh, they're not really asking questions to find out what that person is in there for. And you know what? Sometimes some people, they're not supposed to be sold to. They're not there. You're not the right person for them. Uh, they're, they're not the right client for you. But you're not asking the question. You're trying to just ram a product down their throat. You're not finding out what are they, what are they in the market for? What is their problem? Uh, why have they come to you in the first place? Um, have they been somewhere else? Have they tried that? Did it work? It didn't work? How did? It, what did you try that it didn't work? What is it that you're frustrated with? What is it that you're having an issue with here? And uh, let's, so let's find out how we can help you. Uh, and those are the conversations you need to be having. A lot of times, people uh, haven't even spoken to the person even five minutes and they're already running through prices. How about you take more time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, just talk. Talk to them about uh, where they've been, uh, what they're doing, what their background is, uh, what are they, uh, what roadblocks have they faced before, you know? It's just, in a lot of ways, it's very logical and and self-explanatory. In a lot of ways, it's also, uh, it needs a lot of practice and it's acquired, but, uh, you know, you got to just think of it and simplify it as it's just... Uh, information gathering about the person so that you can like you were saying with the with a barbecue example before you know well, what's your problem the problem is not uh, that i want a, a, a big barbecue or a small barbecue or a flashy barbecue it's just that i want any barbecue that will fit on my balcony if he's not asking the right questions he's not even going to know about that to say well let's go over here this range uh, are the ones that will fit the size. Now we're going to decide which one's right for you. You know, so having multiple products there and just information gathering, intelligence gathering, and that's what probably people are not doing enough of uh, within their sales process. And, yeah, um, and I think a lot of PTs, um, I think a lot of PTs have like they're a bit sheepish about selling to people because like I don't like asking people for their money. Like it's my business; it's a necessity that I do. Um, and when you're a PT working in a gym as well, like you don't like, you don't like having to tell people this is how much it costs. You just want to get to training them usually, right? Like, and most PTs set up some type of a, a direct debit or they sell packages or something. So they don't have to constantly say, this is how much it was for today over and over and over, right? No one likes doing that. And so I think because of that, you like jump straight to being like, oh, you know, better get this out of the way. But it's, it's what Amir said is you got to, you got to actually figure out like, you know, Basically, what is this person here to see you for? Do you have the right tools for the job? And if like you hired a plumber 
and he showed up and brushed past you at the door with his toilet brush and just starts fucking, you know, jamming the toilet brush or the plunger up and down in your toilet. You're like, actually, my sink's leaking. Like, you're not going to think he's a good plumber. Like, you're not going <laughs> to pull him back. And same thing's true with the PT. If you're like, if you jump too quickly into telling people all the shit you're going to do for them to show you, show them that you know your shit without actually saying, well, what do you want me to do for you? You're in trouble. 100%, man. It's, it's it's so simple and so logical when you think about it, but but so often missed, you know. Um, <clears throat> let's go a little bit into coaching. Uh, with obviously you, you deal mostly with powerlifters uh, as well as general population, but but as far as strength athletes are concerned, primarily powerlifters. Uh, uh, any tips out there for people? What say? Let's just say the top three common things that you've learned, common patterns you've you've uh, identified, common best practices you've identified with uh, improving the squat, the bench press, and the deadlift. What can you uh, what can you tell enlighten the people out there about that? Um, top three things for improving the squat, bench, and deadlift. These are going to be really general. But yeah, number one, number one is just have a basic understanding of biomechanics. You don't have to be like, you don't have to be a genius, but just like understand at the different positions of the movement, what the joint positions are going to look like, what the movements in and out of that position are and what muscles do those movements. Because if you can do that, then when you start seeing technical deviations, you can start sort of narrowing down like which muscles aren't doing their jobs here or which movement patterns need strengthening. So if you have somebody who's squatting and all the time their knees are shooting back out of the hole in their squat, you can look at balance and stuff, but you can also say, okay, well, the knees are shooting back and the hips are folding forward. So I'm, I'm reducing the extension demands and in, like increasing hip extension demands. Maybe this person needs more quad work. That's a pretty good place to start. So for your diagnostic skills, just having those biomechanical um, those biomechanical ideas are going to help. And the same thing is true when you're trying to coach technique and stuff as well. You know, when you have people like bench pressing in front of you, like it's really easy to improve someone's bench press if they're pushing the bar off their chest, like towards their feet all the time to just ask them to push back towards their face a bit. And you don't like, you don't need to give them a very complicated explanation, but if you biomechanically understand what's going on, then saying that's going to make things a bit easier. So basic biomechanics, because it's just going to help you with cueing and exercise selection so much. That's number one. Um, number two is don't be afraid to let people make mistakes a little bit. Um, I think because we think of the powerlifts as being technical uh, and we think of us as coaches as being people who provide technical correction, we think people have to always be perfect before we let them advance anything. And we think that we have to correct every little error we see immediately. But part of the way that we actually get good at things is by making mistakes and our body learning to narrow things down away from away from deviations too far either side of what is good over time. So letting people do a few reps where they where they make a mistake and asking them what felt good, what felt bad, and so on, and just letting them slowly figure it out is important. And so is just helping them build general strength and competency because the things that are going to support you getting better over time are basically having bigger muscles and having enough exposure to the lift to sort of begin to automate a bit of a pattern. And once you have a consistent pattern, even if it's imperfect, then you can start doing nip and tuck. But if you have somebody who's just come in and all their squats look different, then if you spend all your time trying to cue them and say, hey, when you're on your toes too much, push on your heels. When you're on your heels too much, push on your toes and you know, don't lean over too much, but don't be too upright and all this shit. 
you just confuse them. So let people make little mistakes, cue sparingly, um, and go from there. So we've said biomechanics, that. And then the the final thing is probably don't um, – I want to say like don't overcomplicate your programming, but what I really mean by that is like don't be afraid to just do what you think will work if you've got a reason, even if it's not like – even if it's not entirely conventional or it doesn't fit the normal school of thought that you train with. Like I've had some lifters, I've got a lifter, Kate, who she just thrives on heaps of really hard bench and not like, not like, Oh, you know, she does 15 sets and they're all RPE eight. Like she told me she was doing 26 sets above RPE eight a week, but before she was working with me. Yeah. It's fucking heaps. Right. And that's when her bench was moving best. And I had her doing like 14 sets of which like six were above RPE8. So I was like, oh, that seems weird. But, you know, we, like we had reason to think it would work. We tested it, started working great. You know, and likewise, I've had people who peak a bit better without actually pushing the intensities quite as high or people for whom like they can't really sustain two heavy workouts in a week. So they do really well with one heavy workout and one workout that's like very metabolically stressful. And if you, if you had like, if you were too sort of locked into the idea of like block periodization, say you'd be like, that doesn't work because you must have all your strength work always focused on strength only in a strength block. Um, so being able to say, Hey, I've got all these ideas in my mind. I've got frameworks of how I like to program, but I'm going to adjust them in light of what the evidence of this person in front of me is saying is likely to work. is really helpful too, because it just takes the shackles off. Like, if you're really limited in the number of solutions you're willing to try, then sometimes you run out of solutions and you want to, you want to be able to say, what's the most logical step next? Not what is the, what is the step that like, that I'm told I must take. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 With, with um, something like the bench press example, uh, Mm. how do you come to find out if somebody, for example, needs a, a lot of hard sets, like, you know, much more than what would be conventional to do for anybody else uh, and and then find out that that's the solution for them. Uh, do you go about that because of the questions you've asked them from their training previously? So that's an easy one if they know that it works to tell you and, and you just go with it. What if they don't know uh, and, and how do you go about finding out? Yeah, so in that instance, it was easy because she'd done it before and it worked. And then I was like, okay, well, why don't we try it? So we set up a roadmap, went there, seemed to be working. So we were like, okay, good, rinse and repeat. Um, but for for people where you don't have that data already or you don't, they don't have an experience that tells you what to do, you have to start observing their response within and between sessions and making um, making some inferences. And even then you still have to test it. And so like um, for some people say – some people say will will not be progressing in their lifts, but they're always showing up to the gym pretty fresh. Like they never seem too fatigued. Um, they finish their sessions. And like, if you were to ask them for a session RPE, it's not that hard. And you're like, well, this person's not really progressing. Their training doesn't look very hard and they're not under recovered. You might logically say, okay, well, maybe they can sustain a bit more hard training. Right. And so you give them a bit more hard training. Or likewise, you might have somebody where it's like, they seem to benefit from doing a decent amount of volume um, and you've got them squatting three times a week. But the problem is that their knees always get sore 
and and they just need a bit more time off. And so with somebody like that, you might say, okay, well, why don't we experiment with reducing the frequency of squatting, seeing if that helps, or modifying one of those exercises so that it takes a bit of strain off the knee, see if that helps. So you've made an observation and then you've said, okay, well, what's what's maybe a logical step to take? And then you try it. But then the then the secret is in trying it. And you say, well, like, did my intervention seem to yield the response that I would expect if my hypothesis is true? And if not, then you got to say, okay, well, either my hypothesis is wrong or my application is wrong. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes it is that your application is wrong and that can muddy the waters. You know, maybe you just picked the wrong exercises or maybe maybe they do need high volumes, but they need them spread out more and not consolidated to as few sessions or whatever it happens to be. And you got to start again saying, well, what observations do I have to help me make my next decision and so on and so on. But it should be a, it should be an iterative process where you say like, what am I seeing? What am I trying? Am I getting the result I expect? If not, why? And go on again and again and again. And the more people that you coach, like, you know, me, you've worked with hundreds of athletes by now, more people that you coach, the more you can start to see trends a little bit. And it can be dangerous to be like, this person is going to be exactly like the last person, but it can be a really good place to start. Yeah. And, you know, I've got a couple of people who are like much taller than average with longer limbs than average who squat pretty bent over. And when you put a really hard squat session for them the day before their hardest deadlift session, they're always like, my deadlifts feel really heavy today and my back's pretty tired because their squat looks so much like their deadlift and their squat, you know, they always end up pitching over a little bit and using their back more when they squat. And so when you when you start also having a pool of experiences like that that you can draw from, then you can start saying, well, here's the trend I'm noticing in this lifter. Here's what I think is going to help fix that trend. Here is another pool of athletes I've worked with who've faced a sort of similar problem where this solution seemed to help. So I've got more reason to think this idea will help. Let's try it and see. And you can start to make probably better and better guesses as you get more experience. And then when you see something that bucks the norm, you go, wow, this person isn't responding like the other people who are in a similar group to them. Maybe they don't have the same problem or I just at least shouldn't expect the same solution. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's completely completely true. Like, you, you know, uh, the, the concept that uh, one thing that would work with somebody of the same sort of population group or, or demographic or like just uh, maybe those aren't even the right words, just like the same sort of profile that that it's going to likely somewhat at least work for another person of the same sort of profile is is very valid, you know. And I think people can be very quick uh, to jump on this uh, individualization uh, sort of bandwagon where they think that every aspect of their program must be completely different to somebody else who is much the same as them in terms of, uh, you know, a, a profile. And by profile, I mean... Say, for example, you've got two people who are both 18-year-olds, uh, uh, both students, uh, both have no, uh, no work. They just – all they have to worry about is go to school, come back home, do their homework, and, and uh, graduate from, from high school. Uh, they have the same sort of social uh, life, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those two programs are going to be fairly similar. The thing that's going to change that for each of those people is how one is built compared to the other. What one's person, what person's training age is uh, compared to the other. Uh, how muscular one is compared to the other. 
maybe even the, of, of, obviously not maybe obviously even their goals because maybe one of them wants to get really strong the other one wants to just get muscular you know those are the things that are going to change that program but if they both have the same goals they're built pretty much the same they they have the same type of lifestyle same age same training age same biological age they both go to high school etc 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 all same 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 a lot of their programs are going to be pretty much the same you know, and, and through trial and error, you start to see that, okay, well, for whatever reason, we don't care about the reason, this doesn't work so much with this person. We have to try these other, other things, you know, like, for example, a lot of hard sets for bench press. Even though a lot of their uh, profile is the same, for some reason, this person responds to much more volume uh, of hard sets in bench press. Cool. You figure that out uh, as you go through experimenting with programs and stuff like that and then you just apply that you know but to begin with the, the the initial canvas can be very much the same very similar i don't know if you agree with me or not no i do agree with you and i think the way i describe it and i've actually got um, like half of a slideshow about this on my desktop i want to finish it and probably put it on my instagram at some stage is like your training needs are individual but the differences um become more and more apparent over the course of your training career and like when somebody comes into you and they're barely trained, like they're a blank canvas and not only will almost anything work, but because I haven't developed strengths and weaknesses and stuff, there's no like, there's no need to go too crazily, um, too crazily into trying to find out exactly what programming variables they need. And people will differ absolutely in the things that they respond to best in training and the degree to which they respond to training across like all elements of the, like all elements of their training career but they're still a blank slate. You've still got to just start with what do you expect to work on average and chop and change a little bit from there. And then as as, like as time goes on, you're, you do develop strengths and weaknesses. So you have individual needs that you need to target. You do get more and more data about someone's training response. And eventually they do probably settle into a more individual pattern. And people who are at the very highest level of the sport usually need training that is a little bit more targeted to to them necessarily than somebody who's just walked through the doors for the first time. Um, but the other thing to consider with, um, with people when they first walk through the door is like change happens so rapidly. And so, so I might be able to say for like a really new lifter who's never lifted weight that comes in, I might be able to say, well, a really good place to start is going to be just building some basic competency building a little bit of hypertrophy and work capacity because that's going to be the thing that sets you up to be better down the track, right? Like it's going to make sense for almost everyone who walks through the door. Um, whereas, you know, as I train them with that, they might be like, wow, like I'm really like, I'm for one reason or another, I'm differentially just growing more in my upper body or more in my lower body or like, you know, I'm building some muscle, but my work capacity is lagging behind or my work capacity is going up, my muscles lagging behind. But that is actually a consequence of the training I've already done. It's a consequence of the general approach that I just gave them. And therefore, I need an individual approach to sort of plug those gaps to get them developing uniformly. It's not, it's not actually that the approach sort of wasn't individual enough. It's that you're applying a general approach to, to an individual and therefore they will adapt individually over time, you know? But you can't, you can't always make the most concrete inferences about what they're going to need like from day one because you just don't have the data and they haven't yet responded to training. So how are you going to predict future training response when there's no past training response to look at? 100%. And, uh, you know, with that, uh, with regards to determining how much more you, you should give people, uh, just a quick 
like pattern I've seen uh, with like with me over the years with with people training people and stuff like that for those listening for um, PTs and coaches uh, when you are and, and we'll touched on this uh, in brief when you've got somebody who is um, who is fully recovering who feels fully recovered and and uh, there is performance that's the optimal so that's the sweet spot where you want to be but it doesn't always happen like that right so they feel completely recovered all the time on a regular basis and performance is in- increasing so week after week you can progressively overload them and they respond to that they're getting stronger or whatever uh, if they're not uh, fully recovered uh, but they're still performing so they're still improving uh, that's not a bad spot to be in, but you just got to be be careful. You got to uh, you got to be aware of what's going on. You might have to sooner or later uh, pull things back a little bit. Okay, whether that's a deload or just a reduction in load on a more long term basis or whatnot. If they're recovered and they're not performing, uh, that's probably telling you that you need to give them more more work. You're not giving them enough volume. So usually, it's not enough volume. If they're uh, not fully recovered and not performing, that means you've just given them too much work. You've overloaded them too much, too much volume, too much work, too many, too much everything. You need to pull back immediately. So that's just the rule of thumb. I actually, uh, from memory, I believe I uh, got that from Mike Teixeira. Uh, so that's always helped me, uh, re- you know, remembering that has always helped me be able to sort of gauge what's going on with, with athletes and clients. Uh, I can keep going on topics like this forever, but uh, you don't have the time. So what I will finish with is what's what's next for you in terms of uh, competition? When, when's when's going to be your next comp? Uh, do you have any planned? And uh, what are you expecting to hit numbers-wise? Yeah, shit. Well, um, obviously, COVID's been a bit of a bummer. Um, yeah. To, to say it in the, in the most understated way. Um so my next planned competition was um, nationals for powerlifting Australia, which is at the back end of October. That at the moment is due to be run in Melbourne, so I personally don't think that's going to happen. Um, but I am pretty determined to compete at some stage this year. So if that competition doesn't occur and I can't do a local one or something, I'll probably end up just doing a test in the gym and then I'll look for a competition towards the back end of the year. I've personally gotten to the point with with my own training and competing that like I do like competition still, but I don't really have much motivation to just show up and do a local comp normally because like I want to compete against people who are my peers or better than me. I actually like, I much prefer coming second or third in a competition where I feel like I've lifted really well than, than coming first and not having people pushing me along. And the good news is my weight class is now quite competitive. There's a lot of people who are much better than me. So when I go to nationals, you know, I'm really scraping to place well. Um, so if, you know, worst case scenario would be I do a local comp at the back end of the year. Best case scenario might be that I do nationals and maybe the middle case scenario is I do a test when nationals would be and then towards the back end of the year there's there's an invitational or there's a local comp where I know a few good lifters will go there and I'll do that. Um, and as for what I'm going to lift, very hard to say. Um, my strength during lockdown was actually really good. So I did, I squatted 220 for three sets of six at about RPE eight. Um, then, which, you know, I've always been good at doing squat reps with pretty high intensities, but I was I was thinking that if I did that, I'd probably be squatting 260 or just a little bit north of it. 
Um, because I think prior to that, my best set of five was 220 and that was at about RPA eight as well. And I squatted 250. So, so I was thinking I'm probably 260, maybe just a little north of that. Um, and that's still roughly where I'd like to be. I think that'd be really good, but we'll see what happens as time goes on. Um, bench press, I'd like to bench 140 in competition. And I think I'm, I'm getting somewhere closer to that now. Um, but again, we'll see as time goes on, uh, that's sort of the trajectory I'm hoping for and deadlifting, you know, I've missed 300 a few times now, so, so I'm yeah. better deadlift north of 300. It's just whether these little sausage fingers can hold on. Um, but I think <laughs> the trajectory is good. So 300 to at least the knee. Um, but <laughs> I think honestly, if I can, if I can hold on to it, I've got the strength for north of 300 easily now. So it's just, you know, can I... Can I hold the bar? Yeah, you've always you've come very close a couple of times now, so I reckon it's there. Uh, just got to work on Mate, the that. Grip, baby. Was, that was the worst thing ever. I you actually responded when I put it on my story. I had to self roast myself because I got it <laughs> literally an inch from lockout and just dropped it like a goober. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, well. just got to work on that grip, baby, and it's there. It's yours. Yeah, Mate, it actually, I makes you pull faster I don't know how when you play guitar. <laughs> It actually makes you pull faster when it, when you when your grip is better. So you pull with more aggression off the ground. So you you develop more speed on the on the front end, and that can help you actually in the lockout. And then obviously with the added benefit of being able to grip it. Uh, where can like, oh you go? What is that? Yeah, go on. I was going to yeah. Well, when like the thing I've found, I say this to a lot of my clients is once your grip starts to go. Because you lose tension in your hands, you start to lose tension in your upper back. That's right. And yeah. then the bar starts drifting away from you and Correct. it just turns into a fucking yeah. shit yeah. you know? Yeah. Grip's very important. People underestimate it. I think it's just there to just grab onto the bar, but it actually causes us a lot of other problems uh, and, 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 and can actually help you with a lot of stuff off the ground, uh, maintaining tightness and stuff. Like that. When grip is bad, you, you lose that tightness immediately, uh, very close after the pull, and that, that can be uh, tragic for the pull. Um, Absolutely. Where can people find you if they want to reach out, if they want to listen to the podcast, if they want to uh, get get a get a sense of the uh, Bill Workman uh, uh, experience brand of uh, of uh, humor? I think everybody needs to needs to be exposed to that at least at least once or twice. Yeah, so probably for my brand of humor, just go to my Instagram. Um, it's w.berkmanpt. Um, I like to say I post about 50% useful stuff and 50% just the stupidest shit I can think of. Um, and you know, the people love it. So go on there. I'm, I'm pretty active in my DMS and things. Um, so if you have any questions or anything, just shoot them to me or I do Q and A's pretty regularly. So Instagram, w.berkmanpt, you can email me at willitwillberkman.com. Um, just email me anything you want. Um, so long as it's not rude and I'll respond. Or you can check out my website, which is willberkman.com, um, and my blog posts and stuff are all available there. As far as weekly weights goes, um, the podcast is on iTunes and Podbean. So if you go in iTunes and you search weekly weights, and it's weak like the antithesis of strong, um, do that on Podbean or iTunes. You'll find us. Or, again, you can find it via my website there. There's links to it on the front page. Yeah, I'll put some. I'll put the links and stuff in the description for everybody who's interested. Um, Will, thanks a lot for joining me, and I really appreciate it. It's good, it good chats. We'll have you again on in the future to go through more in depth uh, nutrition and stuff like that, which I think people uh, can learn a lot from you. Hundred percent. Thank you.
So there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed that one. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and rate and share the podcast so we can get it out there as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. Any feedback is always appreciated. Send it through to Amir at adonisathletics.com.au or you can add me on Instagram, the underscore sport performance coach. And looking forward to catching you guys on the next episode.